Tired of boring Zoom conferences? Fast 21 will bring the latest technology in the virtual environment to ensure you have the most amazing experience possible. This year's program will take place May 11th and 12th, and with the same world-class speakers you've come to expect at the Fast Symposium, Fast 21 Virtual will blow you away. Networking, small group discussions, a complete vendor experience, and more. Go to fastsymposium.com to secure your Fast Pass now. This is Second Shift. Well, howdy, everybody. Mike Verkest and the usual suspects. I guess we probably added a couple more here. We'll get to that in a minute. More. But hi, everybody. Howdy, y'all. Hello. <laughs> Hello there. It's, uh, look at Ritu's hair. I got to just mention it first. It looks smooth. You got to turn around. <laughs> this guy. It is amazing. I'm trying to think of the the character you're reminding me of. Oh, Tim Robbins in uh, High Fidelity. High Fidelity. Yeah, wow. he was the the yogi kind of guy who uh, John Cusack kept, you know. He's the guy that we hate. Out of. Everybody loves that movie. Oh, I Wait love that movie. Best movie ever. You're you're comparing him to John Cusack? Is, did I just hear you say that? No. No, no, no. He's comparing me to the villain in that movie. Okay. Organic dude. I was like, brother, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see how you're getting that, but now it makes sense. Have you not seen High Fidelity? We've had this conversation, and no. No? <laughs> you have not I'm done so your homework. I'm sorry, Brent. See? Oh, no. Well, go tonight in case the Lord takes you before you know morning. You want to see absolutely. Where you go, and you should read the book too. It's a good book. I never read the book. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's we'll pretty see. good. We'll see. We'll see. Well, well I'm trying should... to get the the book of faces up here so I can see the comments. Well, you should. Everybody's in there. I'm just gonna just going on the assumption that maybe our buddy Joseph Zalkin is on. I'm going to get this out of the way. Um, Texas is a delegated practice state. Thank you. So drink up. Yep. Um, for those of you that are watching, I don't think Jay-Z has got us a uh, bingo card for tonight. So um, uh, we'll just go without it, I guess. But I'm sure he'll be on here at some point. But Well, you should. I'm disappointed there's no bingo card. He well, usually has one. Yeah, it'll be coming. It'll be coming. We got lots of people in the chat. Great to see everybody. Thanks for jumping on with us. We thought we would... Um, I don't, it's not, it's, we're going to talk about COVID, right? I know people are a little bit COVIDed out and we're going to get back. Well, yeah, the situation. Sorry. We'll get back and we'll, we're going to talk about the situation tonight. Um, but from a unique perspective and we got some special guests and we're going to introduce those guys here in just a sec. Um, and we'll get back to some jackassery too. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, but I just want to just thank people for jumping on. I know you're COVIDed out, right? But it's been a year and a lot has changed in a year and we're going to get lots of different perspectives tonight. Um, we've got some topics where you would be shocked and surprised how much we actually planned for this one. Did we, did we not plan a lot for this? Well, for us, yes. Yes. Yeah, and I, I agree. Mean, you would be both shocked and surprised. I mean, I don't want to give away trade secrets, but I mean, would you look at that? I mean, no. he's got notes. A man has I notes. Mean, right, what do you want? 
Yeah, let's quit screwing around. I mean, I knew we were going to have Dr. The Dr. Brent Myers on here. I mean, uh, nobody, nobody could re- I couldn't read that on my screen, but I could swear I I swear it said like milk, bread, eggs. <laughs> you definitely did not have my shopping list on there because I would Yeah, I started to say that would not be the shopping list, right? I mean, no. beer, there's different beer, there's other beer, there's <laughs> Well, you know, beer's just full of empty calories. So I prefer whiskey or bourbon. Bourbon <laughs> really. Fair. Fair point. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh a number five hundred and nineteen thousand and sixty-two as of last count. A lot of people are not with us in the last year. And it's pretty unbelievable to think about. And the experiences that we've shared as uh, medical directors, which you'll hear from them tonight, um, from providers, the people that are watching, even from attorneys. Hi, Sam. Good to see you. Thanks for jumping on. Um, I, I mean, it's just changed everything, right? It's changed everything. So we thought we would take tonight and maybe just sort of look back. Let's go back a year and be sort of... Um, cognizant of where we came from sort of where we were when we were at the lowest because there were some pretty low times there's some pretty low times going on still but i think there's some light at the end of this tunnel and it's pretty exciting to me and i know i mean i was given i was given more immunizations more vaccines this morning immunizations more vaccines this morning and i was sitting there and i took and i took a picture of it um, and i've given a thousand vaccines personally and it just wow. never gets old. It never gets old. It like pumps me up. I love it. I just did 10 this morning. It wasn't a big deal. But like that was 10 people that were getting their second dose of Moderna. And there's always a pep in their step. There's always a smile on their face. It's, it's rarely complaining about the shot. It's complaining. It's not complaining about having to come in on busy day. What They are thrilled, ecstatic to maybe have a glimpse of the life they had before the lockdowns, before masks, before COVID. And I think that's really what we want to talk about tonight. So with that, let's go ahead and just do some introductions and we'll start with uh, Dr. Ratu Sani um, because let's get the formalities out of the way. But for those that may be watching that have uh, never tuned into one of our broadcasts, Dr. Sani, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you and where you're from and what you do. <laughs> sure. Well, I am the co-host of the Second Shift podcast with Mike for Guest. Thank you. Yes, right. And uh, I am an EMS medical director here in the Portland, Oregon metropolitan area. I'm the medical director for two suburban counties outside of Portland, so not the main in the not the main in the city one. Some guy named Mike for Guest is one of my direct E's. Um, I don't know. That's a weird thing to I say. I made that up just now. Yeah, that's I don't know. So, I don't know about yeah, that. and then I've got lots of I've done lots of other garbage too. Indeed, you have. Well, cool, awesome. Thanks, Dr. Jarvis. On to you, sir. Well, let's see. Uh, I'm also an EMS medical director, but from the great state of Texas, where you're a, it's it's a delegated, delegated practice, practice state. state. Uh, and I'm the co-host with Mikey here of. Uh, EMS Lighthouse Project podcast, where we get to go over fun, fun literature. And, uh, you know, as you're going to meet, uh, Dr. McCoy here is uh, a medical director up in the first state to really get hit by this. I just wanted to go ahead and announce that I'm from one of the first states, if not the first state, to have cured COVID. Congratulations. Um, I did want to give you one other number, Mikey. You know, okay. the, the 500,000. 
Um, that's a pretty somber number, but I'd like to give you one that's much more exciting. Um, and that is 113 million. 113 million Americans have been vaccinated now. That is about 22% of the population, or we're hitting 2.4 million people a day. Hmm. Uh, that is definitely our path to actually being done with this. So I, I like that number a whole lot better. Well, that's pretty amazing. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I appreciate you out outshining me in my statistics. So uh, you always got to be a one-upper, right? Wait until Brent starts hitting his data source. So <laughs> he'll put us all to shame. That's a good segue. Dr. Brent Myers, thanks for joining us tonight. Talk to the peeps. Yeah, thanks for having me, I think. We'll decide in an hour whether that's true or not. But for right now, I'll say thank you. It seems to be the, the place to be. Um, so I was the director of medical director for Wake EMS here in Raleigh, still in Raleigh, uh, still live in Raleigh for, for a long time, and now the chief medical officer of DSO. And I will say that um, the University of Washington, not to give too much credit to these folks in Seattle, mm -mm. Uh, but the Institute for Health Care Metrics and Improvement and Evaluation, they have a pretty robust model. Uh, and they released their latest model yesterday. And what is really cool about that is that we are in the Mayish timeframe to be above 65% of the population will have been vaccinated. Mm. So at the rate that we're going, um, which now is near 3 million a day, right? And their model hits 3 million a day, April the 9th. So I think we're going to beat that um, at the rate we're going. So we'll be a little ahead of schedule. Um, so, you know, maybe not Memorial Day, but July the 4th is looking pretty good. Yep. Nice. New meaning to the term Independence Day. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Awesome. Thanks. Dr. McCoy. Mike. Uh, so my, I'm Andy McCoy. I'm a medical director, uh, one of the five ALS medical directors in King County. Uh, we have five different agencies that sort of represent King County. I do one of them, uh, Shoreline Fire Department. And uh, I am uh, also medical director for AMR in our area up here. And then um, I'm an emergency physician at Harborview uh, in Seattle. And I have to go there in uh, three hours and 48 minutes. I'll be on shift tonight. Wow. On the medicine wow. side, we still have a separate medicine trauma side, as oh. Dr. Myers will remember from years ago. Uh, so those uh, traditions persist. And I have the medicine side tonight and the trauma side tomorrow night. So it's uh, so Dr. McCoy, we have to ask, what is the name of the GMR agency there in the greater Seattle area? We are uh, we're still AMR branded in this area. We are AMR Puget Sound Operations. Yeah, see, they've got a fancy name. I want to make Very sure. Fancy. Yeah, we're good. I was thinking you were hinting that that spelled something out. No, 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 no. Going... You know, it's not, it's, it sounds much more, you know, calming to hear that yeah. you're in, you know, the calming waters of the sound. Kind we of take thing. care of the water. We take care yeah. of the calm things. Yeah, yeah. it's not it the uh, craziness. I'm getting visuals good. of whales. Yeah, we take care Perfect. of, we transport a whale. That's fine. Whales, coffee, IPAs. Yeah. Load it in the sprinter. We'll take it down. <laughs> Plenty of room in those things. That's the thing. Exactly. Lots plenty, of room to work. Plenty of room. All right. Well, good. So let's uh, let's rewind twelve months. Um, and uh, and and we can all just sort of chime in on this. But I really I really want to kind of direct this one to Dr. McCoy. So if you guys all remember back in the day, early on, uh, there was uh, what seemed to be New York and the Seattle area. We're starting as we had started hearing about this 
coronavirus and and it was all new. I remember I was actually on well, I was on the road, but I was sort of in town, so that, that probably doesn't make any sense. But as I was teaching, and there was a lot of busyness with the agency we were teaching this uh, critical care course to, and they were, they were very busy. And every morning they were coming in and having these huddles, and and it was all the EMS people. And and we started hearing more and more about this coronavirus and what's going on and what is it? And no one's knowing anything. There's people sick. All of a sudden, you know, the hospitals are getting full, and we start hearing sort of Seattle, Seattle, and we're like. Seattle and Dr. Sonny, you can chime in on this. Uh, Seattle is right there, not that far from us. Yeah, like okay, uh, well, that sucks. I thought this was a this was something that you know wasn't here at least in our area. Maybe it's over there where all the people are, uh, but that wasn't the case. So before I remember that first case, and it would be great to hear from Andy about that, but. The last time the five, well, you weren't with us in Austin, Mike, but the four of us, four of us were together at ESO's wave in Austin, but we had already had a case um, by then because I remember one of the presentations was like how that case was dealt with. But mm -hmm. um, so wasn't the first case in North America that case in Seattle? Yeah, case uh, Everett, Washington. So mm -hmm. 20 minutes north of us. Technically a different county, not a King County problem, we but it already was had a case. feet away. Um, so it I, was. I remember one of the presentations was. Oh, like, that's weird. Somebody, somebody's, was, somebody's echoing there. Dealt with. But um, so wasn't the first case in North America huh. that case in Seattle? Yeah, uh, their uh, Facebook. North of us. Technically a different county, not a King that County. That's so problem. weird. I don't have the Facebook, so it can't be me. That is that is so strange. Huh. Are we good? I think we're good. I think we're good. Weird. Let's go for it. Perfect. So oh, Jarvis, was that you? <laughs> yeah, guilty. Sorry about that. I'm trying to... <laughs> Yeah, that was me. Uh, yeah, so first case county to the north. And actually, uh, you know, one of the most remarkable things about that is it had nothing to do with EMS. Right. So the guy was actually never transported. So he, uh, he went to a clinic and said he had been traveling to Wuhan and had some symptoms. And uh, they kind of sent him home and then said, you need to go to the hospital. And I, I my understanding is he drove himself to the hospital. I could be incorrect. It wouldn't be the first time. It won't be the last. But my understanding is he drove himself to the hospital. But that was the wake up call. Right. That this thing is around and, and this thing is here and and it's going to be a, a real thing for us. Right. Because, you know, we hear those of us that are sort of plugged in everybody on this call, probably everybody who's listening. Right. Uh, hears about these things in in far off lands and uh, and little outbreaks here and there. And Ebola is the most recent one that's happening kind of right now is there's a, you know, a little Ebola outbreak in a couple of different countries. So we're going to start screening for travel history on people uh, who are coming into the ER and, uh, and that's always kind of the first step. Right. But this was, uh, this wasn't a travel history anymore. This was, you know, have you been in, in Everett, which is 20 minutes away in a place mm -hmm. that, you know, people go frequently. So that, that was when it really became, I think, real for us and, uh, and, and became, uh, pretty real, pretty quick. So that was, that was our first, I think, wake up. And then, uh, you know, things kind of calmed down for a week or two. And then we kind of had then then it was the life care center in Kirkland, which everybody's heard of. 
and is about four miles from my house where I'm sitting now. So not not far away. It is, uh, you know, very squarely in uh, one of the population centers of, uh, of King County and is, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, one of our closest friends, her grandma's in there. And uh, so it's this is this is something that, you know, really hit home right away. She called and said, how much do I need to be worried? My grandma's in there and nobody can tell us anything. Nobody even answers the phone because we can't get They're so busy. We can't get a hold of them. And, mm. and we had crews that had been in and out of there all week when that thing sort of broke open uh, for, you know, benign transports. Right. Fully replacement, elective fully replacement. Nurse couldn't get the fully done in the in the life care center. So they sent them to the hospital. And now that crew's out for two weeks on quarantine. And everybody that worked with that crew is terrified and doesn't know the history. And, and the fear, I think, was the most palpable feeling that you could that you could sort of uh, come up with at that point in time. So. so so Andy, I I don't know that everybody remembers. I mean, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, what that scenario was, because I think we all caught bits and pieces of it. Yeah. That Unless, of course, they listened to a wonderful close. podcast all about it. Ooh. Wow. Zing. <laughs> trying to further the story, Dr. Jarvis. <laughs> he practiced that look for like a month. He was so proud of it. He's like, call me Shaggy, will you? The uh, ponytail flipped me. I'm going to put my man bun together and give you the look. So... For the record, that's not a man bun. That is that's a legit pony. All right, I'm just okay. keeping it straight. Ain't no bun. Well, you have to have hair on top to get exactly. the bun up there, and so <laughs> the absence of that. Is- oh, are we? Is there a beehive coming? I I think I have the most hair in this room. All right, the maybe ponytail doesn't count toward the hair quotient. Exactly. Right. It does, it does. I think if you're under thirty, and clearly that doesn't count for uh, Ratu. So. Right. Can you let Dr. McCoy tell a story? <laughs> so Life Care Center at Kirkland, uh, one of our, our nursing homes in the area. Washington State actually doesn't have a whole lot of nursing homes. Uh, we have this very strange concept, at least it was strange to me when I moved here six years ago, called the adult family home, which really seemed weird when I heard about it at first. But it's it's a, a very interesting idea where we sort of keep our folks in the community as much as we can when they're in need of help from other people with their ADLs. And so there's these houses all over and there's over 250 of them in, in my relatively small ALS service area that I'm the medical director for, which is an astonishing number. But they all have four, six, eight, ten uh, patients in there and uh, sort of function as nursing homes. The Life Care Center Kirkland is much different. It's a much larger place, 100 patients-ish, sort of your standard nursing home type place that, uh, that you would think about all across the country. Um, these places are really good at caring for people who need their ADLs met, right? They're really good at passing meds. They're really good at bringing people together to feed them in a cafeteria. They are not good at containing infectious diseases, right? Mm-hmm. They are not set up to contain infectious diseases. And and that became, I think, painfully obvious in the first few days of this, uh, of this experiment where um, we really, you know, kind of got in over our head before we had figured out that it was COVID that was uh, causing the febrile pulmonary illness that many of these patients were coming down with. And they're physically located right next to uh, Evergreen Hospital, which is where they transported patients to, obviously. It's uh, the closest facility. So they had transported three or four patients and a very, uh, very astute infectious disease doctor at Evergreen kind of picked up on a pattern that didn't fit. 
and uh, started sending some swabs to CDC and uh, was astounded when they came back positive. And, um, the, you know, the story kind of kind of uh, goes from there. Right. Hmm. Uh, the crews that had been in there, including uh, at least a third of the local fire department, were out. Uh, some of them didn't have a good place to quarantine, so they took down a fire station and quarantined at the fire station for a while and, and tried to isolate there. So it was a whole uh, it was a whole interesting uh, interesting couple weeks. And, and, and I think that was just not to say <clears throat> the King County folks opened up their weekly M and M nationwide, um, and that was really something to to really help others very quickly gather some information uh and so yeah so the was there and everybody was there and you're like oh wait a minute we can actually exactly. learn together rather than every community learn this lesson on their own so yeah so the tip of the spear has its own um interesting trials and tribulations right so the cdc comes in with this whole team of folks who are are experts in infectious diseases uh, nobody knows anything about this infectious disease yet right it's new and novel and, and we're trying to figure it out but they're the people who can kind of give us the best shot at the right recommendations right away and so they're you know very involved locally uh for a while and then they disappear Right. And, and they move on as, as the thing sort of goes on and, and uh, starts to spread to other communities. And so uh, they were here very prominently in the, the first few days and weeks and um, were very, very helpful. And we tried to say, you know, this thing looks like it's going to if it happened here, it's going to happen a lot of places. And, and we need to put this this information out and do it in a controlled way. And so we tried to open up as much as we could um, from the physician side and, and make it uh, public so that others could get prepared and, and be ready and sort of respond in a sane way and with a controlled um, response as much as possible. And I think that was I hope that was helpful. I know that, you know, Tom Ray and Michael Sarah spent a ton of effort doing that and uh, really was, uh, you know, this is that was their baby. And and really, uh, they, they owned it and did a great job. Yeah, I, you know, from from. Go One ahead. thing that I want to uh, point out about, and then I'm going to ask you something about the main thing we learned from y'all is that we really probably should have faith. Once we got a steady supply of it, we should have faith in our PPE. Yeah. Um, but what uh, the picture that I got in your description of that event is going into a nursing home. And it's, it's so unusual for us because it's been over a year and a half now since we've gone into a nursing home like we used to go into nursing homes all the time. So give us an idea of what they were wearing as they went in for that Foley change or, you know, I'm sorry, the life threatening emergency Foley change. Yeah, the, that life threatening emergency. I mean, there's no PPE, right? They, they yeah. might wear clothes. They're not wearing a mask at that point in time in February and, and March of, of last year of 2020. Right. They're not not required to wear a mask by us. They, you know, very few people wore masks collectively on their own. Um, and, and they're, you know, wearing gloves most of the time, hopefully was the sort of idea. So there's, you know, essentially no COVID protection there, right? And, and um, the very, very clear exposures as they're spending, you know, 15, 20 minutes in the back of the sprinter van, which is not a huge space with, with these patients that, you know, have, come back positive eventually and, and we're coughing or not coughing and, and kind of really trying to understand what that exposure is and, and what it meant um, in the early days with no data to go on. So, so what would they be, just from a contrast, what would they be wearing if they went in today? Uh, full Meg. So any any of the nursing homes are, 
are full meg situations for us. So mask uh, and 95 mask uh, with eye protection, either face shield or sort of dedicated eye protection, gloves and a gown. And uh, and that's that's what we're still uh, advising for high risk facilities like that. Yeah. Now for, so uh, again, as somebody who's like two and a half uh, hours to your south, yeah, I think the thing that really jumped out to us was the rapid impact that it had on your workforce. So, so you mentioned, and this is the corollary from the no PPE piece, right? But, but um, yeah, you mentioned that, you know, I remember either reading or maybe even hearing directly from you or something about like the, the fire station, like, or the fire, like a whole station being taken out and, and just how, quickly the workforce was impacted and because we had no idea how infectious this was um not really knowing I mean, we didn't know we didn't know squat um, sure. uh, you know and, and i mean i think we know it's interesting now because i think we know a lot more but i don't know a bunch has changed but a bunch it hasn't yeah right? and, and there was fun no functional way to sort of test these people that were exposed right i mean tests right. at that point were only for symptomatic critically ill patients yeah. right i mean once we got testing i mean and this is a couple of weeks later right so once yeah. we got testing in our region the only people we were allowed to test were people who were admitted to the icu with possible covid so we weren't even um but, uh maybe we were able to test some of the people who were admitted to the hospital i can't i can't remember but it was you know only going into the hospital looking sick and strong suspicions. So nothing like, you know, today where we're testing pretty much everybody. At but, least once, if not two or three times. Yeah. 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 That lack of testing. I mean, I spent a fair amount of the day today trying to figure out how to test jurors going into um, a courtroom trial. That is so not where we were, help, not where we were six months ago. It took us in my emergency department probably three, four, five months before I could test anybody. The guy, you know, I'm about to intubate. Can't test him. Just, you know, the the instructions were just assume they have COVID. Patients were sending home with a fever, with basically anything. Just assume you have COVID. Um, and, you know, it turns out that's not a technically sure, but it's not a very satisfactory answer to anybody. Um, definitely a whole lot different. We're in a much better place now because, um, with those tests. Well, and, and so, and so one thing I, I want to do is I, I, not that I want to get us out of whack because it's great conversation, but I think it's also important to remember back during this time. Right. So we sort of hit on a little bit. Um, I know all of you, I know your, your, uh, your crews that work for you. We, we had no gowns. We had no N95s. We didn't know if we could reuse. Can we use an N95 again? What happens if we got if we had somebody that maybe had COVID and we had an N95? Like, what do we do and how do we do it? Right. So we we had nothing. We had guidance that was coming out almost. It seemed like in those early days, it seemed like every other day there was. Well, you can do this, but maybe you shouldn't do that. And we're and, and if you think about how fast we were learning about 
what we thought we were learning about transmission. Is it airborne? Is it droplet? Is it, what is it? How is it, how's it getting through? And then, and then making these protocol changes and, and sort of limiting these, uh, you know, these aerosol producing uh, generating procedures and, and should we intubate them? Should we not intubate them? Should we give them steroids? Should we not? So there was a ton I can think of, it seemed like for a straight month, we were just trying to figure this out all the time. And I could only imagine now I'm not, I'm not out serving patients directly anymore. Um, but it was frustrating for me as someone that's trying to help lead the organization. I can only imagine what it was like for the crews out there trying to navigate this constant battle of do this today, but not tomorrow. And what we did three weeks ago, well, we're going to do that again. And what a nightmare. So Dr. Jarvis, from your perspective, how did you deal with that with your crews um, and the organizations that you're providing medical direction for? You know, just the, it's really interesting because that rate of, of change was just so massive. Um, ultimately, I ended up deciding that um, we were just playing ping pong ball. We were just, I mean, we were, it was like medicine by Brownie in motion. We're just pinging all over the place, trying to figure out what the right thing was. Um, and it finally hit me. I was doing a little, um, these videos we would send out uh, to our crews saying, well, the protocols just changed again. The protocols just changed again. And I made a complete 180 degree change in less than 24 hours. Right. And at that point, I threw a flag up and said, tweet, that's it. We are doing way more harm by all of these rapid changes than the potential from the virus. Just bunker up, <clears throat> treat everybody as though they might be trying to kill you when they cough on you. But let's just get back to, to practicing regular medicine. Um, because it got really, we, we went through the, well, we're not going to intubate anybody. Yeah. To we're going to intubate everybody. Yeah. And early, 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 better early intubation. Now. Early intubation. Remember, right? Don't Dude, don't use never. don't use CPAP. Oh God, oh right. God, don't use the CPAP. Yep. Just tube them. Absolutely. And uh, so that was the the thing that I think maybe a month or so in, just to this, the most at least for me, the most exhausting part of it. Um, and doing the exact same thing in the emergency department, come in in the morning and like, all right, what the hell are we doing today? Are we doing EBS? Are we not doing EBS? What sort of contraption do you want me to try to intubate in today? You know, this little Iron Maiden thing with tarps and stuff. Um, and it really started to, to make me think just in my own practice, look, I barely know what to do for anybody. Some guy comes in with a broken ankle. I'm going to go, uh, what do I do? Yeah. So I really started worrying about how badly we were screwing up the things that we had worked for decades to try to indoctrinate and to get into muscle memory. And I started really worrying about how rapidly we were going to get that. Um, and the answer turned out to be very rapidly. Um, yeah. I mean, just look at it. Um, you know, I'd look at my cares data and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to come back in 2022 and take a look at this then. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ugly. So yeah, I think uh, one of the other things was this notion of uh, we couldn't get our brain around it because we really liked, for example, the way PPE had always been explained to us. Right. This disease is either spread by droplet or it is spread by aerosol. And there's this line between them and they never show yeah. off. And so 
my hope is after this, we get rid of some of these falsehoods that are out there and, and not want to get on an anti-federal government rant, but for just a minute, when you have this notion that the disease is thus and so, and therefore when I come to inspect your hospital, you've got to go on these 12 things because it's that, but these zero things because it's this, nobody thinks about the continuum between all of these anymore. And so I think one of the things that confused us all was, well, this is not really acting like measles, so it must not be airborne. Hmm. Well, but it kind of is. Well, does that mean you need an N50? I mean, you know, nobody knew how to how to handle them, but nobody had a mental place to hang a mostly droplet, sometimes aerosol disease that has an R not somewhere above the flu, but below measles, right? Nobody knew what to do with that. And, and we ended up with this pinging back and forth and hopefully we're done with those days. Yeah. I don't um, think we are. I wish we were, but yeah. I, 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 I mean, I think there's still a lot of chatter about airborne versus droplet. And, you know, we, in our hospital, we have special droplet, which is sort of, right, right. you know, airborne, not quite airborne. And, and I'll just, I mean, to be honest, part of it was if we went full airborne all the time, there wasn't enough PPE to, to right. so I think right. there was a matter of convenience also that um, we went to droplet. Um, and, and I think that, you know, today I think it's mostly droplet is kind of a, a reasonable approach Seems to it. To be. <laughs> mostly droplet. I mean, I, I don't want to be in an open, you know, I don't want to be in a closed space rather with somebody. Cause I think in that situation, it could be more airborne, but which again is exactly right. What you're talking about. But, but we went, I mean, we went round and round, I think. Um, you know, I, I know here regionally, there was a lot of like, it's airborne, but it's not airborne. And, you know, my emergency department at the time had two rooms that I could take care of airborne people. Mm. Um, suddenly when it became droplet, I could take care of these people on any room. So that was, <laughs> you know, part of it. Right. Yeah. You know, well, one question, Sam and, and Dr. Sonia Rutu, you, you actually answered her in the chat, but it was a really good question question that she posed and it was that did you find that you had trust issues with the crews due to all the changes and protocols and things and 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 the people that are watching i'd love for you to chime in on the chat but i'll, I'll take this one and i think absolutely absolutely right i i think the crews became sort of and i'm just using my own word it's going to sound terrible, like almost paranoid. Right. Um, and I don't, and I don't blame them for that because of all the changes. And I think, and I think at least for me, I felt like, I mean, obviously we were, things were changing so fast that we were always trying, we always were doing the right thing for them, but with the rapid amount of changes, your ability to communicate those in a timely fashion, right. They're just learning about the last change when there was a new change and I think it did create distrust. And I don't think from an evil, like, Oh, they're, we don't trust them because they don't know what they're doing. I, I just don't under think at the time. And again, this was 11 months ago. They, they didn't, no one really understood what we had going on. So we well, were changing a lot, but it, but it, it was changing a lot. Right. And we were yeah. doing the and best I, we could. And, yeah. but I think the reality is, I mean, I can tell you this, every time I walked out that door to go to the emergency department, I was terrified. I mean, I, I, I and so I can't imagine our crews weren't any different, yeah. you know, and especially as we watched, again, as we watched Andy's 
region, as we watch Seattle get busier and busier and busier. And then we, you know, and for us, you know, New York was obviously a big deal for everybody, mm-hmm. for the whole mm-hmm. world. Yep. Yeah. But, but we were really scared where we were because we saw it happening really close to us. Then it's a short trip, um, right? It's, it's, it's real. It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's our big soccer rival down the street. Every, uh, you know, how much it, of a rivalry we've been tearing it up for a while here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I want I want to segue uh, to Brent and talk a little bit about uh, some data. So obviously, uh, ESO, you know, a lot of people use ESO. People are pumping information into ESO, and obviously, you have the responsibility to sort of do something with the information that you're learning. So maybe talk a little bit about your early discussions. Like what are we going to do? What do we measure? Uh, Because I will tell you, I was personally at my agency sharing a lot because you were very communicative, very early on this, right? These are what, this is what we know. We're making all these changes to EHR so we can track this. And, and so tell us a little bit about the process you guys went through to try to try to, you know, to, to sort of, help in this whole pandemic. Sure. No, and I appreciate that. The, the first thing we want to do is just identify the disease. And so, and, and, and quite frankly, this was in, in, in cooperation and, and a great deal with what was going on in Seattle. And we worked to say, there's no place to hang this. What, what was in the ICD-10 book at the time was like coronavirus, not otherwise specified or something like that. Hmm. And I was like, that's not a real place to hang our hat here. Um, so the first thing is that we, we put in the, the dispositions and we could argue about disposition versus diagnosis whenever we want to get around to it, but to, to make it so that the medic could accurately record what they were seeing uh, in real time. And so I looked back. And so this time last year, we had a whopping 135 impressions of COVID disease. Um, that same database right now has 200,000 impressions of COVID disease. Um, from from the transport. So that was the first thing. And then the second piece we've already talked about a little bit is this notion of PPE, right? And how many different kinds can there be? And I, I joke a little bit about there being a P, you know, an N95, an N96, an N97, and a P100, but we're not far, right? <laughs> and so we went in and tried to put all of those in there and then put the reuse capability for each one so that we could quantify how, if you're the logistics person, and you're trying to figure out how many N95s do I need if I have the same burden of disease next week that I had this week, you don't need to know how many N95s and how many responses had an N95. You need to know how many N95s were actually used, right? Which is two separate questions. One is, did my was my crew protected, which you want to know on every case. And the other is how many masks were actually used during that time frame. So we put a new and, and, a, and a used tab in there so you could keep track. And as it turns out, even today, 50% of the N95s are reused. Mm-hmm. Um, and that number has been solid as a rock for 10 months now. Um, what percentage do you say, Brent? I'm sorry. Half. half? Yeah, it's about half of all, all of them are reused. Um, so does the that, other half have that, enough PPE to wear a new N95 with every patient? Or they only see one patient in a shift. Okay. Would be my guess, right? I, I mean, I have, we haven't got dived really into that, but my... What we can, when the superficial look, it looks like everybody gets one a shift is what the best we can figure out. Uh, but that, that's a little hard to deduce. But yeah, some of them are just, they're new because they only saw one 
one patient that shift or, you know, only wore a mask one time, that one N95. Um, so, yeah. you know, there was that piece. And then the last piece was to tie the hospital ICD-10s back so that you could then say to someone, here's the list of everybody the hospital diagnosed. Did they wear their N95? <laughs> right. I mean, really close the loop on that really quickly rather than having to chase each one of them down. So that was kind of the three big steps that we took. And, you know, we, we're very fortunate in 75% of our customers share their data for the de-identified collaborative data set. And so research and benchmarking is what that's for. And if there's ever been a benchmark, this is it. So we felt very comfortable daily. And, and even today, we're still putting up on the web every day, the number of impressions, the number of confirmed ICD-10s, and then a monthly update on the number of deaths and the influenza-like illness. And I'm happy to report for the past week, influenza-like illness has been below the threshold the national threshold of what would be a flu outbreak for the first time since September of last year. Um, and everything else is, is still on the downward spiral. So we're hoping that, that that's, that's going to hold. Um, the last thing I want to say is the good news about the EMS data doesn't require any processing, doesn't be, require coding, doesn't have to go through a state office, doesn't have to go through anywhere. It's immediately available what the medic sees and medics are really, really good at picking up COVID. So if whatever whatever the trend is with the paramedic impression, the ICD tens will follow, but the the trends will be the same. So I want to ask about that um, because you had said something in sort of our pre-show here about the one thing that you think. Um, obviously, there's more than one thing, but one of the big things that you think came out of COVID is we were able to put to bed this notion that paramedics don't diagnose. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to get too far because the Medicare folks will call, right? Because they are not a qualified and independent healthcare provider and we can't make a diagnosis. I get all that, right? I'm talking, I'm not talking about Medicare and billing. <laughs> but what we are talking about is what clinically does this constitute? Is take a history, is perform a physical, is gather ancillary data, is perform a treatment plan. Well, if you do all four of those things, it seems to me you've arrived at least a presumptive diagnosis, if not an, an actual. Uh, but we can call it impression, call it whatever you want. The nice thing, though, is when you look at the curves, the, the curve, the three-part curve in the United States flows exactly with the paramedics' primary impressions. Um, and the first increase is not there in the ICD-10 codes because there was no ICD-10 code. Right. Oh. And so... It, it, I think this gets us set for whatever the next thing is, even if we just have to put in infectious disease not yet defined or whatever the new thing, if there's an impression for that, we can at least see what direction we're moving in. And, you know, medics and EMTs, I mean, to be, when I say medic, I mean pre-hospital provider, but medics and EMTs are really very good at um, documenting that and it's available immediately. Like the EMS system is kind of like the canary in the coal mine, like, like, or, or the early warning kind of thing. It certainly appears that way, at least for this and probably for a lot of other things, but the, the, the ability to put it all together to make that point, this was the first time that was so easily done. I think That's very cool. I think, I think about, and if we sort of fast forward now, we're let's, let's pretend like we're six months into this now, uh, sort of on our journey through this last year um, people, people's, and I say people's, I'm talking about our people, right? These pre-hospital providers are done with COVID. They are done with the constant 
death and hospital wait times and we're on divert and I'm tired of wearing this GD PPE on every single call and I'm working a code on the side of the street in my Tyvek suit and my respirator and when is this going to be done and 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 there and we start seeing this phenomenon uh, creep in where our providers mental health and their physical health and it is just wreaking havoc on on our people and we start seeing that in um, the care that they're able to provide because they just they can't anymore right they can't so dr sani and 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 dr mccoy i'd love for you guys to chime in on this but dr sani go first but what were your thoughts on this and what what kind of things looking back you know were there opportunities we missed to to help in some way with this a little bit more than we were able to or just i just love to have a little conversation about about that well, of course, there are opportunities that we missed. I mean, I, I, I don't, there's no way around it. I mean, did we, did we handle this perfectly? Absolutely not. And, and, um, you know, I mean, we're, this is a good time to point out that we're still in it, right? Yeah, totally. You know, and, and so while we're looking back at this, kind of doing this one year retrospective and, sort of looking back and, and, and part of that is look, feeling those feelings again, right? Mm -hmm. Feeling, feeling the fear and feeling the anxiety and feeling, but we're not done, uh, except in Texas and Mississippi. And Mississippi. Um, but, but we're, we're, I mean, all kidding aside, no, we're not done and no. they're not done there. And are, do I feel um, optimistic today? compared to where I was six months ago? Absolutely. I mean, I've had, I, I was vaccinated two months ago now and um, you know, we were, I don't know if it was after we started or before, but we were talking, I mean, I'm traveling a little, you know, in a few weeks and, and, and this and that. So, but um, I, I think we already touched on the biggest issue on this was the, um, the rapid fire change. And, and when I look back on what we changed and how we changed it, um, you know, the big challenge was we don't have enough PPE, so we don't want to use all the PPE on all the calls. But at the end of the day, we need to freaking use all the PPE on all the calls. And, and it took us a while to get there. And I think that caused a lot of stress for our crews and for our people. Um, and then, I mean, I'm just going to, I mean, you asked me about the stress, Mike. I'm just going to, I mean, we've lost people. Yep. I mean, we've lost people. So um, uh, one of my residency partners died by suicide about three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a, um, you know, an emergency physician who took a uh, sabbatical because COVID had gotten COVID and a number of other issues. But COVID was part of it, took a sabbatical last fall. So again, right in the middle of it and, and took his own life, of, you know. And, and we had another physician, we had an emergency physician in the Portland area who took his own life. Um, so yeah, we did not do a great job with this. No. Um, and, and I think that's gonna be, and I'm not there yet. So, but that's gonna be part of the, I think that's part of the debrief is how do we um 
how do we fix the, you know, how do we look at how we handled this from a mental health perspective? Um, and I, and I think it was pretty poorly kind of overall, um, both in the emergency physician side, as well as with our, with our, um, pre-hospital providers. So, you know, the one thing I'll, I'll say just from a, an exhaustion standpoint is early on, I think we dealt with the exhaustion well because, hey, it's new. Um, we can summon, you know, our, our adrenal glands can dump an awful lot of catecholamine. Yeah. But it only lasts so long. And you mentioned six months ago. By six months, our practice had locked in. We knew what we were doing. We just stopped with all the changes. And we were tired then. And we had another six months to get into before anything changed. And it was just from there on out, it was just pure grind. And it was grind. You know, we had to go through the summer in a Texas summer working a code in the street and all of that crap is it is absolutely brutal. Um, so it's brutal physically and it was brutal emotionally because there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. It's just more of this, more of this, more of this, more of this. Um, and then you add to that and y'all may not see that up there on the left coast, but down here in Texas, we politicize the shit out of COVID. And now you have to deal with the fact that you're seeing COVID cases and you're going home and your family and what you're watching on TV is telling you that what you're seeing isn't true. Yeah. And now you have to worry and you get into this bind about the one freaking bright light on the horizon is this vaccine. That's the one thing that can get us out of this. Mass can can help us. And now everybody is, anytime you want to talk about that, it's an argument. You want to go to the damn grocery store and you get into a fight about whether you're going to wear a mask or not. So that level of exhaustion, I, I think I started a podcast out just by talking about exhaustion. Um, it's just mentally exhausting yeah. having the damn arguments walking out looking at a blue sky and having people tell you it's not blue and meaning it um so that added to it um and it really was just a grinder um i know looking at things fortunately we have not lost anybody in our system um well we haven't had to illness um or suicide our we used to be an agency that really prided ourselves on incredible retention and we are hemorrhaging medics right now. Yep. Um, and so I think, it, and I don't want to blame it all on COVID because we got a lot of other things that we can work on. But boy, COVID was like a magnifying glass in the sun on an ant. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know uh, I, I mean, our friend, one of our good friends, uh, Jose Cabanas, put put it in the chat already that that COVID sort of was like a, was like magnified every, all of the, all of the holes in the system. And I think one of the big holes in the system, besides like disparities of care and, and, you know, where the emergency care system falls down also how poor a job we do taking care of each other and ourselves. I think, I think this magnified that, but I hear Andy's. Um, yeah, no, retirement's up, right? People are, you know, on the, the BLS side, people are going to nursing school. They're going to the police. They're going to all kinds of different destinations and, and they're getting out of this business. And, you know, from our perspective, the EMT schools are down for a while. So we're really struggling to sort of keep up with, with the pace of the, the exodus on the BLS side. And, 
and you know medics aren't aren't made quickly it takes a little while to get a get a medic and then it takes a few more years to get a real medic right and and yeah. get them up to speed so it's uh it's it's a challenge and it's going to be a challenge for a few years we really you know we tried you know i picked up pretty quickly that our folks didn't want to talk about COVID anymore right mm-hmm. and, and then when we did run review and when we had our our meetings and and things that <sighs> Yeah, there might be an update about COVID and we might talk for a few minutes about COVID, but we really got to hit the other things. And we got to remind people that people are still getting shot and they're still getting stabbed and they're still having STEMIs and they're still having strokes and they're yeah. still having abdominal pain that we got to figure out whether they're sick or not. And, and so we really tried to stick to some of those things and really hit those core content areas and, and keep people refreshed and engaged in the other areas so that they could kind of have some things to focus on and and some progress in other areas and um you know never let a a good crisis go to waste we tried to roll out some other things too and you know got whole blood in in the system and and out on the street and kind of gave people some other things to focus on which i think has been a real positive for the crews and totally a a strategy that that was good for us so that was i think this summer is going to be some trauma baby Oh yeah, man, people, you open the people. bars up and you open the, yeah. people stay out, you know, the restaurants are open past 9 PM again, and it's gonna, it's gonna unwind pretty quickly. Um, right. It's going to be quite a summer, but. Um, one thing I, I, I want to go back and I, I want to uh, definitely get Brent's, and this is why we had him on here to talk about some data, but I will tell you that in our system, our volume of calls dropped fairly significantly. I mean, we were doing weekly sort of look back. We were comparing to 2019 and our volume was so flat. Like we, we were not busy. People did not seem to be calling 911. And it was this interesting time period in there where we were just not busy pre-hospitally. And it was very strange. But one thing that the crews were feeling was that it seemed like we were running more really sick STEMIs. We were seeing more cardiac arrests. We were seeing sicker patients, even though the total amount of patients was fewer. And I'm curious from your perspective, what did the data show? Were, is that, was, that, was that a real thing or were people imagining that? Strange of you to ask, Mike. I actually have some numbers that look at that very question. It's almost um, like you planned it. The, what a coincidence. I know. We, see, it was the massive pre-planning meeting that we had. Right. <laughs> um, so the, there it is, right there. So the, there it is. Milk, eggs, beer. So the total call volume compared month over month had its nadir in April at, at 18% less 911 runs than the previous year. And those are pretty flat. So, and if, and, you know, monthly there's changes everywhere, but if you kind of blend it all together, month to month's a pretty decent comparison. But you add to that, there was an increase in that same month of non-transports of 33%. Hmm. So 18% less runs and 33% more no loads. And so if you're sitting at the emergency department and you're not in a COVID hotspot, right, which that's the other thing we're going to learn from this, right? You don't shut the whole country down because you're not getting EMS volume. And a lot of the hospitals were really in trouble financially, right? It was a whole separate conversation, but... Nobody was coming and they were empty. Um, yep. But then to your point, some interesting things happened, right? The cardiac arrest responses were up 35% compared to the previous year, wow. right? Which is just incredible. Penetrating trauma up 60%. Yeah. 
people stuck in the house with people they may not want to talk to, right, for a long period of time. Um, and then motor vehicle crash. I mean, I was with my mother-in-law the whole time. I can, I, I can relate, you know. Motor vehicle crashes were down 40%, right? So that's the other piece. If you don't drive, you don't wreck your vehicles, right? Yeah. So, yes, all of these trends that people felt, and I think uh, it, we're not quite far enough into it yet, but my sense is, and go ahead and record this, Dr. McCoy. Dr. McCoy was right. Um, the the notion is this is going to be incredible this summer about the things that didn't happen the past summer. A lot of, you know, out to the bars and all of those kinds of things, but also the people that haven't gone for their primary care, they haven't gone for their chronic health maintenance. And and you leave that alone for your leave diabetes alone for your leave congestive heart failure alone for your year, and we're going to be in a different spot. So, but no, what you perceived is exactly what happened. Uh, Jeff, did you see that in your system? Well, I mean, what what did you? Well, I know you pay attention to your numbers. What did what did you see? Did it was it so, did it jive with that? It it did. Our numbers um, dropped pretty dramatically. Um, now they've come back to about baseline, about where we were. Um, our number of cardiac arrests, interestingly, did not change. The number of terminations, normally I terminate about 60% of our cardiac arrests. We have a fair amount of rural area. So I don't care how good you go. Our, our buddy Andy here, you take your boys and drive for 30 minutes, they're going to be dead. And what? so about 60% is our um, baseline rate of termination. Um, and we almost never transport somebody. I was doing 75, 80, 85% of our cardiac arrest I was terminating on sale. So when we were showing up, they weren't, even in our, our urban areas, they weren't VFib anymore. Mm-hmm. We would get there and they were systole, 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 systole. Oh, wait, yeah. what's, uh, no, that's a systole too. So, and I, you know, we can't tell exactly what the cause was. We always like to see patterns and create stories that explain those patterns. So the story we were all coming up with is that people are delaying care. You know, I'm having that chest pain, but God, COVID in the hospital, yeah. I don't want to go. And so they just delay it and delay it and delay it until they go into cardiac arrest. Uh, and then we show up. I, and I think that's, I think that's hard. I don't know the answer because to me, that wouldn't lead to 30% more cardiac arrests. I mean, well, see, in, our, in, in our, our system, we didn't have more. Yeah, we did. It was just did. the evolution of the outcomes that did. And, you know, what's interesting, too, is, um, you know, I, we're all high performer. I think we're pretty high performing systems in cardiac arrest. Well, I, Seattle's okay. I haven't heard that they're that good at cardiac arrest. Where, well, where's that at? Yeah. Well, you know, again... If some guys asleep on the street, they count that as a resuscitation. That's uh, true. He woke up. That's what I need. Oh, that won't help us either because Williamson County didn't have homeless people. But you talk about the stress. I mean, we, we're a system. We're all systems that celebrate the great work that our crews do. And by having, you know, the Utstein rates about north of 50%, and overall, you know, rates in the 20s to 30s or whatever, well above national averages. And our our survival rate last year was terrible. And, and at this point, I don't, I haven't ha- take, had the chance. Now we're going to do that as a system 
next month, but I haven't had a chance to really look at the deep dive. Is it because this 30% were all asystole? And if we look at the, the raw number of survivors that were maybe close to where we were, or I, I have a suspicion that taking an extra two minutes to get into the scene because of all the PPE required probably played an impact also. But that's another stress on the system and for our providers, because I think we take great pride in the quality of care we provide. And one of the ways, the main way that we demonstrate to our community um, how we do that is by our cardiac arrest survival rate. And last year was terrible. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work to do there uh, around cardiac arrest and, and to really try to understand it. And, and what the lessons and the takeaways are. Um, and we're just diving into 2020 data, right? It takes a few months to sort of finalize everything and yep. and go through and, you know, the last few stragglers make it out of the hospital, hopefully alive and in good shape back to their house. And so that all takes a few months and then we can start to really dice the data up. And we're just starting to dig into that process now. And I think it'll be fascinating, even more fascinating this year than every other year, but trying, yeah. trying to figure out where, where things were, where these people that... You know, they, the COVID mixed with the cardiac arrest made them sicker. They were sicker before their cardiac arrest. They called later. I mean, this, there's all kinds of fascinating projects in there that, that'll be years of work to untie. Hey, Brent, somebody put in the chat, was there a, you may have this off the top, I don't know, but was there an increase in respiratory call volume? Um so so yeah. we don't have it just by restaurant. We have it by influenza-like illness. Mm. Um, and it was up 6%. Um, you know, so, well, sorry, I, I said that incorrectly. It constituted 6% of all dispatches, which is relatively a much bigger increase, right? So the baseline there is 1.75%. So if you, if you think about the magnitude of increase there, so the influenza-like illness reached 6% of all dispatches. Now, you got to go do the correction for the math for the decrease in dispatches, right? So it's, uh-huh. you know, there, there's a little math to be done there. But yes, it went up and it went up markedly. I would, I've got to get a calculator to tell you exactly. Jarvis can probably do that instead. 18% decrease call volume, relative increase of 4.25%. You know, figure that. But yeah, it went up. Yeah, and we, you know, at the end of the day in, in Oregon, we never had the big influx. So, you know, we're 48th, 47th or 48th in positivity, 48th in deaths per capita, cases per capita. I, I would love to say it's because we did something better or different. I don't know that it is. Um, but um, <coughs> so we did go no. through that whole period of like, like the summer where I, I had shifts where we saw, I saw seven people, you know, right. <laughs> you know, and, and our volume stayed low. Um, but, but the people who came in were sick as not. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about this. I think, you know, some of it was that it was very real here in the Northwest right away. And so I think people paid attention to that mm-hmm. and, and it caught their attention in a, in a way that hit home more than for my parents in Indiana or my in-laws in Ohio, right? It was it was here and it was real and there were people that that we knew that were affected 
And so there was this attention paid by the general population, the non-medical population, in a way that maybe didn't happen, you know, in Indiana where my parents are. And um, and I think that made a difference long term for sort of how things were handled in this part of the country versus other parts of the country. Yeah. I, I And I think, I mean, I think we closed bars and restaurants and schools. That's pretty early really early because we saw what was happening in Seattle. Yeah. And and I, I'll be honest, I wasn't, I actually thought we were kind of going overkill at the time. I think Mike and I talked about it a little bit, but, yeah. but in retrospect, I think, you know, clearly we were successful because we've done well, but, um, but I think a part of that was seeing just off our border that, that there was a lot of, you know that that this could get bad and I, and i think that's the thing and that's i think that's still the thing now that that is lost on people is if something shows up that like if there's a variant that the virus vaccine doesn't cover your system can go from like zero to overwhelmed in like three weeks which is a really quick time um, and that's what we saw happening in Seattle. And I remember we were like, oh my God, it's like two weeks away from us. And, and again, our data is very clear. Like, I think it's really funny because the governor closed the bars on March 17th on St. Patrick's day, she closed the bars and you can see two weeks later, the numbers just start to go down. Yeah. Um, um, now again, we did not have a great frequency of testing. But even what testing we we were doing um, was started started going down like shortly thereafter. So, well, let's fast forward a little bit. We start hearing rumors of this vaccine, right? And people are thinking, "Oh my gosh, a vaccine? How how is that even possible? Um, you know, it hasn't there hasn't been time. And what are we doing?" So, meanwhile. Uh, let's fast forward to, I don't know, December. We finally get word there's EUAs coming down the pike. Um, so I, I don't necessarily want to talk about vaccine, but let's talk a little bit about, um, and I'll throw this one to you, Dr. Jarvis. Did you have thoughts about how EMS was going to be involved in the distribution of this vaccine? Did you Did you have a hankering that Who's going to do this? Well, it's probably going to be EMS because who do people come to in the crisis? They come to our emergency services people. I don't think Walgreens is going to cut it here right now. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Well, I think we might have been in a, uh, a unique situation uh, early on. Everything we were hearing was about Pfizer and the storage requirements. And we looked at what our capability was and realized as an EMS agency, we weren't going to be able to uh, to do that. So we looked at our health district and um, trying to skip over some of the politics. Basically, we were told no. So we had to go to some private agencies. There's a, a group of freestanding emergency departments, uh, and they stood up and said, we would love to get all over this. Um, and they did. And for a long time, they were it. They were the only vaccination game in town. And right around the time that we actually started hitting the supply, our health district um, had a change of heart and then decided they were willing to, to get into it. Um, so since then, there's been a, a change of personnel. And it turns out I drew the short straw and I'm now doing vaccines for our health district. 
So we're definitely getting involved. Uh, and our medics are going around, they're helping with our vaccine administration sites. And interestingly, the way we ended up doing it is our nurses are giving the vaccine and our paramedics are hanging out waiting for anaphylaxis, which isn't showing up, by the way. Walking but, around with a syringe full of yeah. waiting for somebody to cough. Oh, Where are you? You're here. So we, uh, that's what we did. And then our community health paramedics started going out and doing uh, home vac uh, vaccination clinics, mm -hmm. doing vaccines in the house, um, along with some of our, would grab little pieces of our um, health district. So our community health paramedics have sort of become part of the health district at this point, um, temporarily anyway. Yeah. How about... And, uh, uh, We've oh, had sorry. some EMS folks involved in the vaccination process too. And I, I got to say, these folks, they love doing it, right? Whether it's EMTs doing a standby for anaphylaxis or, you know, they're actually out there doing the pokey pokey and administering the shots, just like you talked about, Mike, is, mm -hmm. is one of the most rewarding things that you can do right now is, is sort of help people see the light at the end of the tunnel and, and get the vaccine delivered. And it is, uh, it's, it's really cool. And I stop by these places every now and then, and they, I mean, the smiles on everybody's faces are, are palpable behind the masks. You can just yeah. sense the feeling and, and it's pretty, pretty cool. Pretty so cool. I I'm glad you said that because oh, yeah. it's, I had my shot way early or shots. So I've been fully vaccinated for quite a while now. And I think I almost started to forget how much of a difference it made on my psyche to get that vaccine. I remember the first, I mean, all of us are so excited. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're trying to deal with vaccine hesitancy, but, you know, putting our pictures, getting the vaccine on Facebook, I was absolutely excited. It was such a big deal for me because we've had six months of beatdown. And now here is our path out. And uh, I'd started to forget that and going in and helping with the vaccines and seeing people's response just reminds me how great it feels. Um, it really is. It's amazing. Yeah. Our folks and, love it. yeah. And that's, that's, that's exactly what I wanted to throw it to Dr. Sani uh, just to sort of start helping us wrap up here, but talk a little bit about like, how did you feel when you were able to get vaccinated? Like, was it, is it like, Jeff described, like, I mean, did it just talk about that a little bit? Well, it was, I mean, it was amazing. And it was, I mean, I think I was a little, you know, I was part of the, remember the vaccine doesn't work unless you post a selfie of yourself getting it. So I, I was part of that crowd. Um, but, but uh, no, it was emotional. It was emotional on many fronts because yeah. Because it was December, we had been at that point nine months into it, um, and uh, just still hadn't. And remember December, right? The numbers were terrible. Yeah. November had been an absolute. You know, Thanksgiving was a shit show. Yeah. Everybody got together. Our county commissioner had twenty people over to her house, right? And was very proud of that. I'm very proud of the fact, but November was a sh Thanksgiving was bad. I didn't realize you had a Texan for your county commissioner. Don't get me started. <laughs> but anyway, oh, I think she's technically my boss. But anyway, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, December was terrible numbers wise. 
We people deaths were up, hospitalizations were up. I had a daily conference call with every hospital in the system, where yeah. we were trying to figure out when we would pull the handle on 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 not transporting patients. We never got to the point like they did in Florida or New York, where we would leave people at home. But we kept talking about when we were going to get to that. So December was awful, and then in the middle of nowhere, there's in the middle of the, all that there's this light of like, you are vaccinated. Now the chances of you, you now at some point in the near future, two, two weeks, you're gonna see an improvement and then four, four, three weeks and two weeks, blah, blah, blah. You're, the chances of me personally getting infected is going down. And then, and then as we, kind of develop as this moves out through the community, the ability to see the numbers start to go down in our community. So yeah, absolutely. It was emotional. It was emotional because I mean, science wins, you know, that's the other piece. It's an ode to science. Um, and then, you know, so that was good. My, um, and then the other piece on, you know, I, our agents, the various agencies I work with, including the one that Mike works for has been, have been doing vaccines, both for, for other first responders as well, but at the community as well. And that is amazing. That is, that feels having been at these clinics where people are driving up and where, you know, we were doing a vaccine clinic for, um, for folks who were high risk and these vans would pull up with like six kids with developmental delay that were all high risk. And we're poke, 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 poke. It was amazing. I was so happy to do that. And then my wife, who many of you met last week, <laughs> um, you know, she's not a medical person, but she's volunteering at our big vaccine um, deployment area at our convention center. She did that today for for six hours, um, getting people vaccinated. So yeah, it's it feels great. And we just have to, if we could just be careful yeah. in and and um uh you know disciplined just for another as brent pointed out just for another couple of months this could really be done but i'm a little bit worried that we're not being disciplined right now i can i can tell you that um you know i make fun of our governor all the time um but i am so glad that i don't have to make the decisions he's making because i I absolutely understand uh, the political reality is that you, everyone is so just exhausted by this. And then you have all these people about whether masks work or whether they don't, the, the true fake news. And then added to that is we're seeing our number of vaccinations climb. And we actually know that there is protection and that um, you're seeing now we're at about 18% of our state. Um, and you say, well, what actually is the risk now of, you know, just being in our office? We've dropped our mask mandate in our office and in our stations if everyone there is vaccinated. Um, we and so you start to feel this, hey, there's this sense of, of freedom again. And that's momentum. And, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to stop. So I, I can get it. I'm, I'm still going to mock him. But I'm glad I didn't have to make the decision because there really is some momentum there. And I think you're right, Ritu. That's that's really what I worry about. Because the 88, 78% that's not vaccinated right now um, starts to get sick. 
No. <clears throat> All right. We've, I think we've had a great conversation. We could probably talk for hours. Uh, I want to be respectful. It is uh, what, two in the morning there where you're at, Brent? Yeah, it is. Yeah, almost three. <clears throat> almost three. And, you know, you got to get to bed at some point. And Andy's got to get to work. It's, it's, it's been awesome. Oh, and, so, the, and the NCAA tournament is on. And the tournament is still on. Michigan plays on Saturday, but. Oh, God. Michigan State plays now, and I'm really hoping they lose. Uh, we're going to try to go for three wins in the weekend. We'll see. <laughs> That's I was, right. I, I, I have no idea what this game you've is. You've got a Buckeye up there, and you've got a. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my wife's a Buckeye. Up we'll there. just leave her out of the conversation. <laughs> so funny. Uh, last thing I want to do real quick is just give a quick plug to uh, Fast 21. So as you guys know, uh, Fast 21, our uh, Flight Bridget Air and Surface Transport Symposium has gone virtual. It's May 11th and 12th. If you want to get more information, go to fastsymposium.com or just go to the Flight Bridget website. Uh, it's going to be phenomenal. It's not going to be a Zoom conference. We uh, had a kickoff meeting with a vendor that we're going to use, and we're going to blow your usual virtual conference out of the water it's going to be phenomenal so i'm super excited about it so go check it out may 11th and 12th uh it's going to be awesome um and i think with that really i need to switch my view around a little bit here so i can get ready to get us out of here uh dr brent myers andy mccoy ratu jarvis thank you guys for jumping on thanks for everyone that's been watching um appreciate it so much so on behalf of all of our guests thanks for watching you guys all have a great day, and we will see you later. All right? Take care. Second Shift is a production of Flight Bridge Ed, LLC at flightbridgeed.com.